0: Let's get going. 29 past the hour. Mm Hey, everybody, I'm Kyle Ruzdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense.
1: And I am Kimberly Adams. Welcome to What Do You Want to Know Wednesday? How we celebrate Hump Day over here at Make Me Smart. Yeah. It's where we answer questions that you, our listeners, have sent in. And if you, our listeners, have a question about the economy, business, or tech, you can send it to us at Smart at marketplace.org. You can also call us and leave us a voicemail at 508 UB Smart.
0: All right, question number one today political campaign donations go. Hi, my name is Jan. I'm living in Thailand, but I'm a U.S. citizen. And I am curious to know if it makes any difference at all right now about donating money to a political candidate or a particular party. Does it make a difference? And if you do donate right now and they don't use the money, what happens to the money? Hmm. Thank you. Over over to you, Uh, once upon a time, Washington (laughs) correspondent for
1: Marketplace. I'm still a Washington correspondent. I do politics things sometimes. Uh, And in this case, so I'm going to answer the exact question first and then go a little bit broader. At this point in the campaign, we're like less than a week out. The money that you donate to a given candidate or party is very unlikely to be spent directly in this election. What is more likely to happen is that those dollars will end up being spent on after-election stuff, just because of the timeline it takes to process money and all that stuff. Anyhow, but that after-the-election money is really interesting because there are certain things candidates can do with that money and certain things that they can't. So if you back up, um, money really does matter in campaigns. The Center for Responsive Politics, which runs this website, which is really great, called Open Secrets, which tracks money in politics in 2020, and they've looked at this in many other um, cycles as well. It showed that for House and Senate races in the vast majority of the time, the candidate who spent, raised and spent the most money won. It doesn't always hold. See a 2016 presidential yeah. Election, yeah. um, And that, of course, is a presidential, but not House and Senate. But generally, more money, more power, you win. Small donors, super important to these campaigns. Individual donations can really not only give a lot of money in mass, but also it's a good talking point for campaigns to say that their money is coming from individual donors. And also, if somebody is donating to a campaign, that often means that they are much more likely to show up to vote. Hmm. So there's that part. Now then, circling back to the after campaign money. Candidates can use that money to pay off bills from their campaign. So maybe you still have consultants you owe money to, or you rented a big venue for your, you know, election night watch party and you got to pay for that. Somebody's got to clean up all the confetti. Or if maybe you have to, you know, pay for your web servers or winding down your campaign offices and stuff, all that stuff costs money. Also, the Supreme Court um, Back in May, lifted some of the limits on how campaigns could use the money after elections to pay themselves back for personal loans that they made into their campaign. We talked about that here on the show. And a lot of times candidates will hold on to that cash. To save it for their next campaign. Or maybe they were running for president and didn't make it past the primaries. So they use the money for their Senate campaign or vice versa. They have leftover money from a Senate campaign and use it to run for president. Or if you're like former President Trump, you convert the money into a PAC, a political action committee, and you keep raising money and you can spend that money pretty much however you want Um but uh, CBS News did a breakdown on what happened to the extra campaign cash raised following the primaries in 2020, and we're going to link to that on our website.
0: Yeah, it's uh, campaign cash. It's endlessly fascinating, endlessly so fascinating. fascinating, and and also by the way, endlessly infuriating. Could I, if I could, just editorialize for about two seconds? Right? I mean,
1: I mean, I don't think on, that's maybe. editorializing. I think it in right. infuriates just about everybody. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> All right. Next up, Bill in New Lebanon, New York, wrote in to ask, When the U.S. releases oil from the Strategic Reserves, is it sold at market prices? If the government purchased the oil at $50 a barrel and sells it at $85 a barrel, does the government keep the difference?
0: Well, I mean, so first of all, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, obviously in the news a lot lately because President Biden has authorized the release of many, 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 many millions of barrels of oil uh, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve set up, by the way, in the 1970s after the Arab oil embargoes. If anybody uh, listening to this podcast remembers those to be used for strategic purposes, not to editorialize one more time, to keep gas prices low. But that's a whole different thing. Um, so look. Um, government accounting is number one a shell game, right? I mean, when the government moves pots of money around, it is it is um, not robbing Peter to pay Paul, but it's one pocket to another pocket. So it's it's really tricky. The short answer to the question uh, is that um, it is sold at auction, right? So um, um, uh, I was going to say producers, but actually producers and refiners submit bids to the SPR to the Department of um, uh, Energy. And uh, the government then accepts, obviously, the highest bid. Now, it also does have to, the government does have to replenish that stockpile, right? Because we've got lots and lots of extra space now in those salt caverns in Texas and Louisiana, which is where the oil is stored, um, that we have to fill back up again. And the government does wind up paying market rate for those. Um, and that becomes a challenge if they sold low and they're going to buy high, like today, Oil's back up over $90 a barrel. Um, so that's kind of a challenge. So anyway, SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, not keep gas prices lower, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, and, uh, yeah, it can, it, can, it can affect the government's finances. Kind of. Kind of.
1: Okay, but to take the non-cynical possibility, and and yes, we we all know that it's probably linked to trying to lower gas prices. But if the original purpose was during the Arab oil Mm -hmm. embargo, right now we do have sanctions against Russia and Mm -hmm. there is a, you know, military national security interest in not- getting oil and natural gas from certain parts of the world. Doesn't that kind of fall into the same category?
0: Well, yeah, except for a couple of things. Number one, oil is a globally traded commodity, right? And we operate on the extreme fringes of viability. We produce about 100 million barrels of oil a day in the global economy. We use about 100 million barrels a day in the global economy. So it's really, really, really thin, those margins. So Mm -hmm. what, what Biden is doing here is not adding any extra... Right. He's meeting the capacity that we need. Also, let's remember that it was about um, becoming energy independent. It wasn't about gas prices. It was about not having to rely on Arab nations and Gulf nations and now today OPEC plus to meet our oil supplies. So I guess nominally, sure, you could say that it is strategically in our interest to release it right now. So we're not dependent on those guys. But really, it's about gas prices. Mm, Yeah. Okay. I mean, mean it kind of is right. Uh, especially now, in, in you know a midterm, that, that, the, pri- that the, <laughs> the president's mid-terms. getting whacked on inflation about it, and of course, the, the even though gas prices are lower than they used to be a number of months ago, um, that's what he's getting beat up about because you see those every time you're driving down the road in you know eight-inch high letters. Um, yep. So anyway, uh, okay, so there was a news item last week uh, about Meta. Uh, which I think we just don't even have to say is the parent company of Facebook anymore. I think everybody gets that. I don't think so. Uh, Meta had to pay an almost $25 million fine for violating campaign finance disclosure laws. Lots of campaign money on the program today. Here we go.
1: Hi, Make Me Smart crew. This is Peyton in
0: Rochester, New York. Hi, Peyton. So, my question. Why is the U.S. so bad at punishing (laughs) corporations Hmm. for breaking the law? And why are the fines always so Laughably, or maybe uh, heartbreakingly small. Thanks for making me smart. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Only in this context would we talk about twenty-five yeah. million dollars yeah. as heartbreakingly small. Um, but to recap, last week there was a judge in Washington State that fined Meta the twenty-five million, twenty-four point seven million for repeatedly and intentionally, according to the verdict. Breaking the state's political uh, ad transparency law, it's believed to be one of the largest penalties of its kind in U.S. history. Um, And, you know, I'm sure we're going to link to some coverage about that. Um, The attorney general's office had also sued Meta in 2018 for breaking the same law, which is one of the reasons why they said you're still doing it intentionally in such Mm -hmm. a big number it really isn't a drop in the bucket for these companies it's a rounding error and in, in some cases and so we talk uh we talked to Yosef Gatacho who's a media and democracy program director at Common Cause and one of the things he said was that these fines maybe aren't the best way to get companies like Meta to stop breaking the law but they are the only option that regulators and enforcers of these laws actually have this is the tool that congress has given them to punish these companies and he said that fines are sometimes seen as the cost of doing business Mm -hmm. so for facebook or meta you know if you're sitting there and you're looking at your numbers and thinking about how much it's going to cost you to develop whatever program you need to or lay down whatever infrastructure is necessary and the time it's going to take you and you know, the air quote hassle to come up with a system to block these political ads, layer that on top of the revenue that you're going to lose, maybe they're just like, eh, 25 million, not so bad. Yeah. It's worth it. And, you know, um, he brought up how the FTC fined Facebook $5 billion in 2019 for user privacy issues. And the company's stock actually went up after that because you know the markets are like oh great you solved that problem moving on and so there's probably other strategies that would work better like enforcement strategies like court orders that actually force a company to change its behavior or you know maybe even personal liabilities for executives that would uh you know maybe bring some people to actually be held accountable for the things that the mm-hmm. companies they run mm-hmm. do. But good luck getting that there, Congress.
0: For sure. For sure. Uh, yeah. Should we just go right to the last one here? Let's go right to the last one. Yeah, let's okay. do it. Let's All do it. Right. Let me
1: scroll yeah. down. Oh, right. <laughs> the other day, Kai, <laughs> you mentioned that you're selling oh, yeah. your minivan to get an electric vehicle. And Graham in Ann Arbor wrote in to ask, can you walk us through how you're choosing and what brand and model you're planning on getting.
0: Yeah, so it's it's time, you know, with the kids basically gone, right? We've got one out of four children still in the house. We just don't need a minivan anymore, and it makes no sense for me to be driving around in this big cavernous cavernous thing. And also, as I think I said the other day, it cost me $108 to fill up, and I'm just like, I'm not doing that anymore. So, we are going to buy an EV. I did a bunch of research. I uh, went online and checked out, you know, car driver and um, a bunch of the automotive um, experts. I read up on Dan Neal in the Wall Street Journal. He's uh, a former Marketplace uh, contributor, also really knowledgeable about cars, um, and did a bunch of reading and landed. And, and here's what I was looking for. I was looking for range. I was looking for um, charge, chargeability, which is to say how fast it can take a charge, which is a function of a whole lot of different things. By the way, there's a whole, like, language you have to learn, and there's a bunch of things you have to learn with an EV, which I didn't really think about, um, but, but anyway, but that comes into comes into it. Um, cost was a factor and also, you know, I, we don't need a minivan, but we need, we want a little bit of room, right? Throw some bags in the back or a dog or two or, you know, whatever. Um, so we came down on uh, a Hyundai Ioniq 5. Uh, we're pretty excited about it. Uh, and it should be here in a couple of weeks. So that's, that's kind of what I did.
1: Is it big enough for your mountain bike or do you have a bike rack?
0: it I have a bike rack it actually the the car with the specific car we're getting comes with a tow hitch on it and we're gonna, I'm going to buy yeah. a bike rack that fits in there yeah oh
1: yeah. cool yeah
0: I'm pretty excited oh. about it I'm pretty excited about it
1: Good luck Thank I you hope you have fun Thank with you. it.
0: so so here's what Bridget wants to know and, and Marissa, I imagine um, how did you think about buying a motorcycle?
1: Oh, um which goes way so back, right? I mean, you've
0: had that. Motorcycle it goes way time. back. Yeah. yeah.
1: I started riding a scooter when I was in Egypt. Oh, so I, I got my motorcycle license before I moved to Egypt the most recent time in 2012, because I figured I'd probably want to get around that way because traffic is awful. But I ended up getting a scooter. And it was like a 300cc scooter in Egypt just because I'm gear shifting is not my strong point. (laughs) Mm, I'm not really great at it. And so I had my scooter in Egypt and then sold it before I left. And then when I came here, I wanted to get something bigger so I could get on the highway because you can't really do much with a 300cc scooter on highways in the United States. And so i wanted to upgrade to something like 700 or 800 cc's and i ended up finding a used bike on craigslist that was really reasonably priced and it's a um, honda ctx 700 and it has something called dual clutch transmission which means it can operate and either a manual or automatic mode, which means that if I don't want to, I don't have to gear shift. And so it looks like a real motorcycle. It is a real motorcycle, but I can ride it like a scooter.
0: Sorry, I'm I'm Googling the image now. Look at this, Honda CTX 700. Oh, look at
1: that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. And it's great. And that. I, of course, I researched the VIN numbers and everything like that yeah, made yeah. sure it hadn't been in any accidents yeah. and all those things. and. Yeah, it was great.
0: Well, there we go. And and that concludes the automotive section uh, of this podcast. <laughs> and what do you want to know Wednesday? Back tomorrow, uh, <laughs> yes. as we always are. Making you smart on the news of the day. We'll do a Make Me Smile uh, as well.
1: Yeah, and in the meantime, keep sending us your questions. Our email is smart at marketplace.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART.
0: So wait, do you have a car, too?
1: No, uh, I don't. Just the motorcycle. And I walk and take the metro yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergsicker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter.
1: Today's show was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado. Ben Toliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Bridget Bodner is working on the new season of Million Bazillion right now, but she's still around. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. For now.
0: For now. Long, anyway. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dun dun dun.
1: Dun dun dun.